And this is what we're going to talk about this morning. It should change the way we view our relationships, and it should change the way we view one another. When you look at the Bible and you look at the story from Genesis to Revelation— You see that sin enters the picture pretty early on, and along with that, there are a good number of negative ramifications. And I think sometimes we don't fully appreciate or or give thought to the consequences and how far-reaching they are of sin. So, like, when, when you sin, you know, we might think, well, okay, well, that's something that, that hurts my soul, and then I have to be forgiven of that, and it kind of, we move on from it. But when you look through the Bible, like, sin is not only something that impacts our soul. Sin is something that impacts creation. Sin is something that impacts uh, others. It impacts our relationships. It impacts, like, the world, body, and soul together in so many different ways. When you look at the story of Eden, and you have... Uh, Adam and Eve with that first sin, and you look at the curses that entered into God's good world. After spending so much time saying, it is good, 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 it is very good, we finally see that curse and pain and sin and exile and death enter into the story. And along with that, you see things like the, with the curses, he says, curse is the ground because of you to Adam. And all of a sudden, the earth itself begins to suffer the consequences of human sin. And you see that the, Adam and Eve themselves begin to suffer the consequences as they are exiled from the place of life and from the tree of life and the source of life. And death becomes a constant reality, uh, the first of which they experience is the death of their very own son. And you begin to see how sin has all of these negative consequences. But think about how sin from the get-go, while still in the garden, caused them to immediately turn on one another. After the eating of the forbidden fruit, when they appear before God and he is uh, discussing the situation with them, Adam's first uh, line of defense was that this woman who you gave me did give me to eat, and that's why I sinned. Like, the first thing he does is he turns against the woman and also kind of blames God for giving her. He's like, you know, this world would be a much better place if she hadn't been here, you know? And you look at that, and he immediately begins to turn against the person who's closest to him. The person who, the last thing we have that he said was, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman, for she was taken for man. And how quickly those kind words get turned into, look what she did, you know? And so often, sin has a a way of not only harming us and not only alienating us from God, but sin causes us to turn against one another. I mean, think, just think about how often the struggles in your relationships with other people, whether it's you or them, and I know it's always them, but I think of how often those struggles have been the result of selfishness, of pride, of dishonesty, of gossip, of like all of these types of sinful things that not only will they harm us, but they destroy those closest to us. Sin is contagious like that. And sin is dangerous like that. And, and it has a way of taking things that seem so small and just little by little dragging you down further than you ever thought was, was possible. I mean, if you look at your life years ago and you look at your life now, there, or, or you look at your life now and what it could potentially be, there are so many times where we find ourselves in places that we never thought we would. It's like we never thought things would get this far. We never thought sin would cause uh, the pain in this area, or it would destroy me in this way, or it would destroy this particular relationship. 
but it does that. Little by little, day after week after month, it has a way of separating us from those closest to us. Keep reading the story of the Bible. Not only does Adam turn against Eve right after they're out of the garden, Cain and Abel. And you have, they, they both offer worship, and you know, that's a good thing, uh, but one of them is acceptable and the other one is not, and I think there's room for discussion about why exactly that is. But the result of that was Cain being so embittered in his heart against his brother. You think, why in the world would, like, God talked to Cain. Cain could have just tried again and done it better this time. You know, Cain could have learned some lessons and, and, and improved himself. But instead what he did is he turned that need for improvement into rage against someone else who was better. And jealousy, competition, all of these things swelled up inside of him pride and it turned into violence, it turned into hatred, it turned into murder. And, and, and something that could have been a valuable life lesson, you know, I realize I did something wrong or I didn't do this the way that pleased God, I'll do it again. It turned into a way of looking at others and that first sin led to an incomprehensible, a, a terrible tragedy. Something that tore his family apart, that led to his own exile. So it's like you have Adam and Eve exiled from the garden because of sin. Then you have Cain exiled from his family because of his sin. And it just leads further and further and further to people being torn apart. And that turns to a whole world where violence uh, reigned supreme and people didn't trust one another. People didn't have strong relationships. You, you eventually run into a guy named Lamech who ends up taking multiple wives for himself because he's, it's, it's not about having a close and loving relationship. It's about collecting uh, and, and satisfying himself in his way, the best way that he can. He takes more than one wife and then he starts this chant about how if you think Cain will be avenged, Lamech sevenfold. And I, there, was a, there was a man who wounded me, so I killed him. There was a boy who insulted me, so I killed him. And like, he starts talking about how he can turn and destroy anyone who gets in his way. And like relationships, which we were created from, from the garden to enjoy. And we, we are communal creatures. We were created that way. God, I, I think that's one of the it's one of the beauties of the doctrine of the Trinity is that God is himself one, yet God is within himself love and relationship. And he invites us into that relationship. He created us to be one flesh with one another. And he created us to be uh, families. He created us to be people who work together. And like all of that ends up, because of sin, getting turned into mistrust gets turned into hatred, gets turned into violence. You keep reading, you get to the Tower of Babel. And what's interesting about the Tower of Babel is you actually do have unity in that story, but it's a unity that's founded on the wrong motives, the wrong goals, the wrong desires. And so what God so often is doing throughout the rest of the story of the Bible is trying to take diverse groups and bring them into one. What he does in the story of the Tower of Babel is he takes this one group and makes them diverse. But he does that, and as that happens, they take their pride, they take their violence, they take their uh, cruelty, they take their sinfulness with them. In the rest of the story of the Bible, think about how often nations are rising up against nations. Think of how often language is not only a barrier with communication, but it's a barrier of truth trust. It's a barrier of, of, of unity in so many ways. And you look at the Bible and there's just so often one nation conquering another, one people enslaving another. Israel was enslaved to Egypt. They end up in the, in the land of Canaan. There are constant wars and battles with the peoples there. And all of that is just how, because of sin, 
relationships in this good world that God made have been turned into a mess. But throughout the Old Testament, there are also these images. There are these beautiful pictures of some future glorious day when people of these different groups are going to come together into one family to sing praises to the one God of Israel together. There are these pictures of the, the Tower of Babel being reversed, and people who had been sent away are going to be welcomed back together into unity with one another so that with one voice they can worship and praise God together. You see this glorious picture of Isaiah too, of them coming together to the house of the Lord to praise God. You see Daniel chapter 7, where people of every nation, language, tongue, and tribe are joined together in the praise and the worship of God. So there's this glorious day coming when relationships are supposed to be restored and repaired. And as you get to the pages of the New Testament and you see Jesus, I think Jesus spends so much of his time trying to transform the way that people have thought about others so that people can come together into one. He radically transforms the way people have thought about clean and unclean, the way people thought about who is and who is not worthy. Sin, which so often separates, he died so that it could be removed, so that we could be a a people forgiven and the people who are one and united and together. When you get to Acts chapter 2, you see this beautiful picture of the Tower of Babel story being reversed, where people in the Tower of Babel started off in one city with one language and ended up with many languages in many cities. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, you see this list of people from all of these different places speaking all of these different languages come together, and with the gift of tongues, they speak to each other in one language, and you have unity restored in the people of God. And Paul, as a missionary, he takes that mission with him to all of the different nations, trying to unify people who for thousands of years have had virtually nothing in common with each other and have been uh, uh, divided, trying to bring them together into one family. In fact, that's part of the very call of what the gospel is. The gospel is not simply the story of how an individual person is forgiven and goes to heaven. That's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful part of of what the gospel does for us. But the gospel has ramifications right here and right now for who we are. It has social ramifications right here and right now. The gospel is the mystery of how God has brought people from every different walk of life together into one family to be the very people of God. And that's why, like in Ephesians, Paul will describe that is the mystery, that Gentiles are fellow heirs. They're fellow children of God together with the Jews. And the people who had been divided are now one people. And that's why it is such a big deal in the book of Galatians. Peter, he had been eating with Gentiles which was kind of a a faux pas for Jews. That wasn't something that was ordinarily done. But he, because of the gospel and the unity that God had called him to, he would eat with Gentiles. But then some Christians, some Jewish Christians from Jerusalem, came to Antioch where he was. And he knew that they didn't do that. And he felt torn. Do I keep eating with Gentiles? Or do I go and I, I sit with them? And he ended up no longer eating at the same table with Gentiles so that he could sit with his Jewish brethren. And you might think, well, that's kind of rude. Right? Paul sees it as way more than just kind of rude. Paul, when he sees that Peter has made two tables where God wants there to be one table, he says, you're no longer walking down the path of gospel truth. This is actually a rejection of what the gospel is about. 
And you, by making two tables instead of one, by creating separation and division in these relationships that God is trying to mend together, you have lost track of what our actual goal and purpose is here. So Paul, and that's obviously going to be a big deal to Paul, who spends his life trying to bring Jews and Gentiles together. You know, he's the one who says, to the Jew, I became a Jew to win the Jews. To the Gentile, I became, to the one under the law, I became as one under the law. To one without the law, as one without the law, that by any means necessary, I might save some. Like, Paul has made his personal identity not to align with any one group that might be divided from another group. But his identity is one that can relate to all men because the gospel to him is even more important than any of those identity markers that might separate you. And he sees Peter creating these two tables and he rebukes him to his face because that's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is the story of how God is bringing humanity together, repairing relationships with one another now and, yes, for eternity. And so that eternal view is what we often focus on, but it starts right now in the way that we treat one another. It starts right now in the way that we receive each other. It starts right now in the way that we view and mend and work towards restoring relationships that have so often been been torn apart. You read through the New Testament, and more ink is spilt on the page trying to bring people together than probably just like any other topic. The book of Romans, I think that's the main purpose of the book. You have Jews and Gentiles who had been separated, now they're put together into to, to one church, and you're trying to figure out, okay, what role does each one have, and how do they fit together into this plan of God? And so he writes this monumental work demonstrating theologically how God has a place for both Jews and Gentiles together, and how you better not ruin that because you want to eat this, and they don't want to eat that. Don't destroy for the sake of your food the person Christ died for, is what Paul tells them. It's like, Christ died to bring you together. Don't let your little fights with each other tear that apart. Like, don't, don't let something small like your, your food or what you eat or drink or what day you observe, don't let that be something that destroys the unity for which Christ died. Make that a priority. When we talk about sound doctrine, there are a lot of things that I think are, are sound and healthy and good doctrine and doctrine that we should hold to, but unity is one of them. And to neglect the doctrine of unity for the sake of all the others, I think is itself a, a dangerous place to be. Unity matters very much. And Jesus died to bring people together. And Paul spends his life as a missionary going to every different walk of life to bring people together. Things like racism and nationalism, things that create hierarchies or things that turn against people based on what they look like or where they're from or what language they speak or how much money they have, those are all things that are wholly and entirely antithetical to the gospel. Those are things that the church should be leading the way in rejecting because the gospel is about bringing people together. That's an essential part of what the gospel is and what Jesus does. We bring people together from every nation to serve the one true king who is Jesus himself. That's why the end of the gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, go into all the world. Or he says, uh, make disciples of every nation. It's like, go into every one of these nations so that no matter where people live, no matter who their king is, no matter what their politic is, they can be united in the one true king, which is Jesus himself. That's the message of Jesus. That's central to the gospel. And that's how God is seeing relationships in this world that have been severed and torn apart by sin, being reunified, being reconciled through mercy and love and forgiveness in the person and in the people of Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. 
This is one of many passages you could go to that, tr- that, that describes how to live together as people with so much diversity in one family of God and how you can make that work. And even in this chapter, one of the difficulties with this lesson is choosing a passage to focus on because it's like every, every like verse, it's like, well, you got to have the one that goes before it. And then you got to have the one that goes, you got to have the one, and you'll end up just preaching the whole book of Ephesians, which, uh, which I'm going to try to not do. But, uh, but in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul has spent the first three chapters. Ephesians is, is one of those books that divides fairly simply. It's six chapters, and the first three, I think, are there. I read them as like an invitation to Gentiles to be co-members, fellow heirs, fellow children of God into the family of Jews. It's almost like a welcome letter. Welcome to this glorious church that you're now a part of. And if you thought that you were part of something special before, let me tell you about the church that now has you as a special and honored member within it. The church is is seated at the right hand with God. The church is, is something that was in the mind of God before the world began. The church is something in which Jesus is the head and that you are now a part of and that you now matter. And so it's this beautiful description of a highly exalted view of the people of God and how Gentiles are welcomed in to be one and fellow heirs in that people. And then verses chapters 4 through 6 are largely about okay. So now that you're with us at the table, now that we're all one family and we're all one, let's make sure we live in such a way that honors that relationship. Let's make sure we live in such a way that maintains that relationship and let's make sure we live in such a way that is worthy of that high calling. In fact, chapter 4, the first couple of verses, after describing how glorious it is that in the church God has reconciled the world to himself, Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to live or to walk in a manner worthy of that calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, and being diligent, working really, really hard to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You look at those words, and he's saying, like, walk in a way that's worthy of this calling, and that's going to include humility. I mean, that, that's, that's essential for relationships lasting. As soon as you start to put yourself as above the other people in the relationship, as soon as you start to think that you're greater or you deserve more than them, uh, as soon as you elevate yourself above others, the odds of a healthy relationship being maintained, they kind of go out the door. It says humility, gentleness. You know, gentleness is helpful (laughs) when it comes to really, no one likes a brass rude person who uh, dominates the conversation, who dominates uh, their ideas, and who dominates them in a relationship, but approaching people with respect, with gentleness, with patience and tolerance. You know, patience, you have that idea of long-suffering. Tolerance, tolerance isn't something you have when you agree with someone. Tolerance is something that you have when you disagree. Tolerance is what happens when you don't agree with another person, and yet you're going to make it work anyway. Uh, he says that's actually going to be an important part of this, because there's no way you're going to get two people groups to, across the board, wholly agree on everything. I, I know in this room right now, you could, you, we can come up with 50 topics, and I bet we will all have our own uh, perspectives in some way. Like, there's no way every one of us are agreed across the board on every one of them. So what do you have to do? Sometimes you just have to have patience with someone who disagrees with you 
and have tolerance for someone who disagrees with you as you recognize that you have something more important that's binding you together. And so he says, showing tolerance for one another in love. That's what you have. Like, the love that we share for one another overrides the squabbles that we otherwise might have. That's a grand call. Because we can always, always find reasons to be dissatisfied. We can always find reasons to think that someone else should be doing something better or that someone else should, be, uh, should have done this instead of doing that. Or as a church body, I mean, I, I, I have a lot of respect and uh, appreciation for our elders because they have to make decisions and they have to lead and guide this flock. And there's no way that you can do that for this many people and everyone, for every decision you make, think, that's the best possible one, you know? Uh, like, there's no way. People are going to have disagreements. People are going to wish things had been done differently. And it's not like they can avoid decision-making and just avoid all of that. They, they're forced to make decisions, and those decisions impact other people. And when they do so, and love is the motivation for it, which, in my experience, that has been the case— and you do so for a congregation that genuinely loves one another and loves them, then that's how you can have healthy decisions. But if every person, as soon as something happened the way that they didn't like it, if every person then dug their heels in the ground and said, no, it should be this way, then again, you'll never have, you'll never have a healthy congregation of people. You'll never become the one family that God is calling you to be. You have to have patience and tolerance. You have to sometimes roll with things that you would have done differently because that's what love calls us to do. And that's part of that diligence in verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Instead of being diligent to get things done my way or your way, you be diligent to make sure unity and peace are what, uh, are what reign supreme in this body. And so that's just the beginning right there of chapter 4. But chapter 4 goes on to talk about you have people with diverse gifts. And that diversity is great. That's good, actually. But use each of those gifts for a singular united purpose, which is, you can look at verse 13, until we attain the unity of the faith. Like, use that diversity of gifts, again, to bring people together in acts of service towards one another. As you get towards the end of the chapter, he is uh, describing the transformation that took place within uh, followers of, of Jesus when they transformed from their old life to a new life, and how that was a putting away of the old self and a putting on of a new self. And he describes what this new self is going to be, particularly with respect to these new relationships. When, you, when you're baptized, that's not just between you and God. It's like you're given a new family, and you think, okay, now I have to live with these people. Uh, what is this going to look like? And sometimes those people are super wonderful and easy to get along with. Sometimes they're not so much. So how is it that you, like, you're forced to have this new family and to live into that? What do you do with that? Well, it, it requires a transformation from an old self to a new self, a new way of viewing relationships. It requires Christ vision in seeing the goodness of Christ in every person you look at, whether you ordinarily would have gotten along with them or not. Like, Jesus is the reason that we're together, that we're a family. We see each other in a new way because of him. There are so many people here that if it weren't for Jesus, 
you probably would not be in a room with the other people who are here. It's like, it's, there's something greater than us that brought us together, that made us sing together this morning, that made us take the Lord's Supper together this morning. And so what is that? Well, that's Christ. And that, that's what reigns supreme and matters the most. What happens when these other types of things get in the way? Things that per- perhaps our old self would have said, no, that's a deal breaker. I'm not being with this person anymore. Well, with your new self, who are you going to be and how are you going to view those types of disagreements? Well, look at verse uh, 25. We're just going to finish out this chapter quickly <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and see some of the things that he calls us to do. Verse 25, he says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to each other, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of of one another. At the end of every one of these admonitions, he, he relates it to, and this is good for us because we're members of one another, or this is what other people need. It's all about one another here. And the first thing he says is don't lie. Like, seriously, lying is, speaking falsehood and lies, are, those are relationship killers. So be honest. That doesn't mean say every true thing you could possibly think of, but uh, it does mean don't say things that are not true. Uh, and so speak the truth to one another. Uh, just earlier in the same chapter in verse 15, he talks about speaking the truth in love. Uh, and so speaking truth and doing it in love, uh, there are many, many true, good, loving things to say. Maybe, maybe focus on some of those. And sometimes truth will come, and it won't always be easy and enjoyable. And when that happens, make sure that love is the motivation behind it. But give up lying. Uh, in verse 26, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your anger, nor give the devil an opportunity. You know, anger is something that if you let it stay with you, it will eat you away. He says, you can, anger is going to happen. You're a human being. You will experience every human emotion. Anger is one of those. But don't let it spend the night. Uh, don't let it last a long time. Let it last for merely a moment. I recently learned that a moment is 90 seconds. I always thought it was just like a nondescript quick period of time. Google it. It's 90 seconds. Anyway, uh, <laughs> let anger be something that lasts for just a moment and then goes away. And try again the next day to maintain, to reconcile, and to rebuild relationships. The longer anger lasts, verse 27 says, do not give the devil an opportunity. The devil can use your anger. And the devil can do a lot of damage in here if he uses your anger to do so. In verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. And so he says, don't steal. By the way, that's not a good relationship. Stealing from someone, not a good way to build a relationship. So don't steal. Instead, work hard. And you know what you can do if you work hard and you make some money? Look at the end of verse 28. So that he will have something to share with the one who's in need. So why do you work hard? Because we're a new family. We're not going to stay angry at each other. We're not going to lie to one another. We're not going to steal from each other. In fact, we're going to share with each other. We're going to share our goods with one another. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So when you speak, speak in such a way that others hear and they receive grace and edification from the words they hear from you. Uh, Again, it's easy to complain. There's a million things you could justifiably complain about. Like we, we can all find things, but what are you looking to talk about? And are you thinking about the person who's hearing you? 
Speak words that give grace to others. Speak words that build others up. And if you don't do this, there's a consequence. The Holy Spirit, I think, actually grieves when we neglect our duty towards one another. So verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, and then that final phrase, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. It's like, put away all of those relationship killers and put on kindness and tenderness. And guess what? Along the way, people are going to mess up. It's not always going to work. You're going to fail at that. They're going to fail at that. So, also forgiving each other, just as God in Christ forgave you. Imitate God, chapter 5 and verse 1, and walk in love, just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us. How do we treat one another? Well, you look to the cross, and you see Jesus, who deserved nothing but glory and honor and worship, instead received the pain and the bitterness of the cross, and he did that out of love for one another. That's the type of love that we're called to imitate as we view one another. Because Jesus died to reconcile the world to one another and to reconcile the world back to God in him. And so let's be part of that mission in the way that we treat each other, in building relationships in our private lives, in our families, and with one another as a people of God. If there's anyone here who wants to be part of this new family and new community of God through the cross. The invitation is yours. The offer is yours. You can name Jesus as Lord of your life, have your sins washed away and forgiven, and become one member with one another here this morning. If we can help you do that, please let it be known while we stand and as we sing.